this Sunday. I would really, uh, based on kind of what we're sharing this morning, I really wanted to start with a testimony uh, from someone who's uh, been with our, our community here six months, eight months, a year. I don't know how long. If you could come up, please. Four months? See, I'm not very good at that. This is Esther. And so uh, I've asked her to share just a little bit of her story. This is going to be your microphone. Uh, you will hear a little bit of accent, so you'll know she's not from South Texas. Um, that's all right. Many of us have accents even when we're from South Texas. But uh, I wanted to introduce you. She's, uh, I think, near and dear. She's a little bit quiet, maybe a little bit shy. But when you hear just kind of her story, you realize, wow, she's, uh, God, is, God is really a force within her. So uh, just if you would share a little bit about how you came to know Jesus and where you're from and how you came to know Jesus. You can, yes, you can. And this. So you get to use both of them. Okay. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I really love my church in America, which is this church. And I'm so surprised to, um, Pastor and God put this day for me to share because Today is the last day of Sukkot, and I'm really excited. And I want to talk about Sukkot for a little bit, could I? You have 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. Enjoy. Um, in the Bible, this is in the Bible through Old Testament and New Testament, there are seven um, important festivals that start from Passover. And when Passover happened, Passover lamb was killed, and then... Jesus was killed, and then so that festival has already um, fulfilled. But I don't know the seven festivals name in English. But then it moves to <coughs> the fifth one is Wuxunjie, uh, which is when G um, when all the disciples waiting for Jesus and the Holy Spirit come. And it also fulfilled. And so now, so six, seven of the festivals, um, six has already happened and fulfilled in the history. And we are on the last one, and which is, um, 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 it's remembering the 40 years Israel peoples living in the desert, and they have nothing. And they only depend on God, and they, they live in a tent. And so, and so, in the book of Re Revelation, um, chapter 21, verse 3, it says, God, um, God is going to, it's not fulfilled yet. God is going to, um, in the wilderness, then Moses have people build up a thing that, which means God wants to live with his people. Yes, yes, that's the English word. And then so in the book of Revelation, it is not happening yet, but God is going to do that again. One day he is going to um, live with his people and no more tears and no more, uh, pain. how to say that? No more sadness. No, no more, more pain. Yes, no more pain, no more tears and no yes. more sadness. And so 
So every year we um, remember this festival and looking forward to it. So in Jesus' name we say, no, in Jesus Christ, no more pain and no more tears. And it's a beautiful day and we, we rejoice in the Lord. Okay, I, I spent more than 30 seconds. <laughs> so it's a good day, it's a beautiful day. And um, So what is your name? Okay, my name is Esther. And you're from? I'm from Taiwan. And how did you come to know Jesus? How do I? Okay, I was grow up as a Buddhist because it's my people's history. Buddhists came into China around like two or three thousand years ago. So people's born as a Buddhist. And so I was born and raised as a Buddhist. And then... Um, then this mi American missionary from Seattle, and she just um, have this calling after World War Two. She just uh, have this calling, and then and she get on the ship to China to <laughs> be missionary, and so her dad is waving goodbye to her that if you want to jump out of the ship. You can now, and but she still shipped to China and then moved to Taiwan to share gospel there. And so she started this organization for people to learn English that is called Studio Classroom of English. And so when I was 16, um, I go to this English learning uh, rally and I saw it's teaching English. I didn't know the whole thing is about Christian. And so then night the theme is Jesus is your best friend. And so after the whole thing is done, and then people said, if you want to know Jesus as your best friend, please stay. And so the moment I stay because I want to play this English. And so this lady goes through the spiritual four law with us really quick. And she said, if you want to accept Jesus Lord into your heart, you just um, said a prayer with me. And I, I was like um, being polite. I closed my eyes, bowed my head, but I said, I cannot because it's family betrayal. And we, we Chinese say family doesn't mean dad, dad, mom, brothers and sisters. We means including grandparents, all the uncles, all the cousins, all the nephews and nieces. It's a re betrayal and rebellious against the whole big family. And so, oh, I cannot do that. And so the moment I standing up from there, I start tearing, crying. And so I don't know why. I thought, like, what is wrong with me? So I took the booklet, and I go back to my dormitory. And, and so I read it again to the last page. There's the prayer. And so I think to myself, OK, if this God is real, I say the prayer, then I get to know a real God. But this, if this God is not real, I, I read this just talking to air, so it's not going to help me. So I was all tearing, and so in tearing, I repeat the prayer. And at that moment, I know, oh, he is real, because then my tears become like, Pock. And then I was like, this guy is real. And so the next day, I go back to school to find the only Christian girl in my school. And, and so she brought me to church. So I was baptized. And 
grow up in church at the age of 16. And then when I finished my education and get my teacher's license, and then God is kind of like, go back to your village, <laughs> go back to your village. But also like, that's the uh, place that I don't want to go back the most because before uh, 1997, there's no church, but there are 47 Buddhist and Taoist temples. And so every time I want to go to church for Sunday worship, it's a lot of work to go to, go back to the cities and things like that. And so I, I went back there. I set up my teaching job, and I just fell in love with those little ones. And so I just like, I can tell them Bible stories and things like that. So I started an ice cream club <laughs> for them. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then the scary thing happened. <laughs> Do we need music? <laughs> the most <laughs> scary thing happened is um, the kids and the teenagers, they start getting touched by the Holy Spirit. And when teenagers, they found something authentic and real, they got all fiery, and they cannot shut up. So, <laughs> so they go home. They, they go home and, and they go to school and share and they go home and then those parents start, what did you do to my kids and things like that. So the story starts <laughs> like this yeah. and then we start having to hide the Bibles and, and there's these kids that he brought his Bibles, he had his Bibles in his school bag and his dad found it and then take it out and throw it in the trash can and then and he warned his wife that if, if, if our son keep doing this, you are going to be in trouble. Because back home, men still have a great authority to beat their wives. And so, and so then, a long story short, and then we have to uh, rent a building, and we have to hide the place. Um, we wash a guy and play in the, on the second floor. So when we hear the engine of parents come, then we can quickly put a Bible away and open up school book and read. And so things becomes even worse to the bottom there. Sometimes um, I get threatened phone calls or people wanted to burn down my school or things like that. <laughs> so you didn't know she was in our church, did you? <laughs> and then so, <laughs> I don't know why I'm so joyful. It's just probably, um, you know, when God called you, you, you didn't know what's in the package. <laughs> and, then, and then, so anyway, um, let's go back to my personal story a little bit, because um, um, it's not uh, what I want to do to be like it's so spotlighted, like be the only Christian there and to be so uh, notorious of bring Western gods to unknown teenagers and things like that. So kind of in a spotlight and so many people's angry at me. And then I, because uh, when I was young, I was very little. My dreams always to find a husband 
and be married, just very simple, and be a housewife, have a very simple life. And then I came to the Lord, and then, and I get involved in that for 17 years. And, and during the process, I started to um, give up my dream, and I think, um, in the book of Isaiah, I know that uh, the Lord is my husband, and I just fall in love with him. And so I started preparing myself to be single for the rest of my life. And then, and then I just don't think it's possible for me to get married because they are no Christian men. And, and it's so isolated, a small town, and it's just not possible to find anyone. And so, <laughs> But two years before, because those children and teenagers start growing up, and, and most of them, they come from um, really broken or poor backgrounds. And I finally get done with the last one day from middle school to finish university, and I was so happy, oh yeah. And so they put, they say, it's time for you to get married. So they put my profile on the dating website. <laughs> and then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, and then I said, God, it's enough. I need to retire from, like no mother having children for 17 years, like, <laughs> you know. One children and then they are one year older and then another one children and then they are one year older and then it's repeatedly possible. I said, like, God, I need a break. And so on the dating, on the dating websites, <laughs> did I take too long? <laughs> yeah, but it's okay. <laughs> on the dating website, I was like so scared because it's like all kinds of people. So after two weeks, I said, I'm gonna close this and give up. And before I close this, um, there's this America, American guy called Mark Alan Carrazas contact me. And I said like, oh, I'm gonna remove everything out of the thing really fast. And so he said, we can talk through messengers or what. And he, he, he looks perfectly like, okay, man. And so I said, okay, we can talk. And then, and then <laughs> he just fly to Taiwan to meet me and we all shocked. <laughs> and, and then I got married with him and I am here. <laughs> Praise God. And then so, so I just think God is amazing because sometimes we Christians always are taught that God sacrificed for you on the cross. So you sacrifice for God. But we, we don't know that God always remembers the dreams that you give up for him. And so these two days during the uh, Sukkah festival, I was praying and, and I get these from Sometimes we understand here, but we don't understand here. But then I get these words that I really want to share, and that is, uh, I hope I can find, I write it down in my diary. That is, God meet all my needs. Yes. Amen. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and this is an awesome church. I really like it. 
you had no idea this quiet young Asian woman over here is a preacher. Thank you, Esther. For the second message of today, not necessarily the better one, not necessarily the longer one, just the second one. The reason I wanted to share is it really goes with today's message. And, And the title of this is, Who Am I Now? And and we kind of started this series looking at uh, how the, the scripture declares that we are the people of God and talks about what that is. We're a, we're a priesthood. We're God's holy possession. We're, we're all of these things and that we're, we, we represent this to the, to the world. And it says that we are the light of the world, that, that God uses us to light up the world. So we have this incredible position of blessing for the world. And then we kind of brought these things to four conclusions week before last, and Jeff last week kind of put some meat on these bones, and that is that uh, the people of God are called to follow Jesus. If, if you want to know what our calling is, it's to follow him, whatever that looks like, wherever that goes. And the second is he is inviting us to surrender our design. Our design is the one I have created for my life. It's my hopes, my dreams, what Esther was sharing It's all of these things, my likes, my dislikes, my preferences, my strengths, my weaknesses, everything that comes together to make my story as I have created it. God is saying, would you surrender that to me? I have a better one for you. And then our journey together, this is with Jesus, but it's also along with the people of God. It's journey together that we will find out that as we journey with Jesus, it will change us. We become different. We become different people over time as we walk with him. And then the fourth thing is how we looked at, the scripture says all the changes, everything that God is gonna do, everything will happen through relationship. Everything is in a context of relationship, not about rules, not about position, not about power, but about relationship. And as Jeff kind of shared more on that last week, I want to take it yet another step when we talk about out of Matthew 9 that this new life will need a new you. When the scripture talks about you can't put new wine in old wineskins. That means we are going to have to be a different vessel. Now, as much as we might say, yes, okay, the truth is, there's two real issues with that. One is, we have no idea what that means, to be, to be different, to be um, of an origin or, a, or a, a building of God, a creation of God. And number two, we have no idea how to do it. I mean, even if I want to do it, I can't necessarily do it. And so I used this term a couple of weeks ago uh, called, the first thing we have to do to surrender my life is to surrender the law. Now, when I say surrender the law, I'm really talking about your law. I'm talking about my law. And what that is, it's not necessarily the Mosaic laws. It's not about Ten Commandments. It's not even about religion. It's really about the ideals. It's about the truths, the values, the beliefs, everything, the priorities, everything that has made you, you. Everything that has made me, me. That becomes my law. 
When I say, oh, I don't do that, or I hate that, I love that, oh yeah, that's me. When, when, we, when we decide who and what we are, I'm an I'm a Astros fan, I'm a Cubs fan, I'm this, I'm that, I hate this, I love that. When we do that, what we're, what we're doing is we're, we're identifying this is my alignment. And these things become how we live and how we relate to other people. It becomes the filter or the lens whereby we view everything, especially ourselves. Especially ourselves. You know, when somebody who hates lying, they hate a liar and they lie. They tell a lie. You realize that hate comes in on them. They despise what they did, even though they might be able to justify it, even though if they had the chance to do it again, they would still do it. They still hate it. Why? Because it violates the law. It violates their identity. You see, so your law is really about you. It's about your identity. It's part of who you are. We're taking this course on Wednesday night and they have, you know, the the scientific term for your brain, it's the right orbital prefrontal cortex. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's right up here, and it is what stores your identity. It's where all these things are imprinted. It's, it's the part where you say, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Christian, I'm an atheist, I'm a Buddhist, I am, and there it is. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a Presbyterian, I'm tall, I'm handsome, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm smart. Whatever it is, that's where it's printed. And it's more powerful than you think. And you aren't able to override it yourself. Years ago, I took a class... um, I was on associate pastor at Houston Vineyard. I took a class. And in this class, um, they wanted you, they gave you a, a post-it note, you know, a little sticky thing. And you were supposed to write on there uh, labels that people had put on you. You know, unreliable or wonderful or great worship leader or whatever. But mainly they wanted you to focus on the negative labels people had put on you. And this, the, the exercise was going to be this. We're going to put these labels that people have put on me, and then we have a cross, and we're going to go over, and we're going to put it on the cross. We're going to take those labels and put them on the cross. Now, I agree with what Esther said. You know, okay, I can be polite. I can do that. I can put down the things, and I can put it up there. But in my moment of, of, of praying and thinking about the labels people have put on me, I, be, I came to this realization that people usually saw me in a good light. And so in general, people didn't put a lot of negative labels on me. In general, the negative labels on me were from me because I know the truth about me. I know everything about me. And I have a set of labels. And here's the, here's the problem with my negative labels about me. They are all true. Every one of them are true. And you see, it's difficult 
It's difficult to put that on a cross because your thinking is, if other people have put these on me, then they're really not me. But if I have put them on me, I didn't do it out of a weak moment. I did it because I have seen it over and over and over again. True. And so I wrote down the labels that I put on myself and I had it on this post-it note. And then this thought came to me. Now, this is the God part, right? This is the part you have to, if God doesn't come in and do this, then it doesn't happen. All right. So I get my note and I was going to take my note and put it up there. Why? Because that's what we were supposed to do. That's the exercise. And everybody else is doing that. So people, 35 people in this room. And so I put these down and I sit in there and then, and then I don't know if God asked me the question or I asked God the question. It matters not. If these are really gone, who am I? If I'm not this, because it doesn't mean I'm the opposite of that. You know, if you are always late, it doesn't automatically mean you're always on time, does it? If you're a liar, it doesn't make you honest. If you're, it, it doesn't make you something else. It just means you're not that. And I thought, what labels do I have to replace these labels? And this image I got was a blank post-it. I thought, I won't even be able to describe myself. I don't know who I will be. And I mean, the depth of this reality was crushing to me. And I wrestled, now this class is over at 9 p.m., it's on a Sunday night, and about 9.15, I've got my head down, my eyes closed, because I know I'm running late, and I kind of look up, and everybody is gone except the leaders, and they're kind of like, and, and so I got embarrassed, so I take the sticky note, I put it in my book, I close it, and I walk out. And I knew this was the first night. This was supposed to be the easy class. This was the easiest one. The first night I thought, I won't say what I thought. But anyway, what I thought was, you're in big trouble, Bill. That's a sanitized version of what I thought. Those things had become a part of my identity. And I saw them as true and real and undisputable about me. You see, it's in these place when I gave you this list, surrendering your law. It's out of this law. It's out of this identity that we create. Things like entitlement or judging others comes out of this. You see, if it's your law, you will judge people by it. If you're always on time, then you will judge people who are not on time. You, it, it's a value to you and you know, it's irresponsible of people. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's making your time not valuable to them. There's all kinds of labels. And we judge others. You know, if I don't have any trouble cussing or not cussing, then if you have trouble cussing all the time, I go, why don't you just, why don't you just deal with this? Why don't you take care of your, of your language? We compare ourselves to others. This is how we do it. We do it from this part of our brain that our identity is resting there. It's what disqualifies me. When I have violated my rules, I disqualify me. It's where guilt and shame have a voice. It's where I justify my behavior because of injustice. It's where the secrets live that are about me. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, and I want to pull together, 
you know, about 40 hours of training in about two minutes. There is something called worldviews. Some of you might have heard about having a worldview or what is your worldview? And a worldview is how you see everything, how you see reality. And see, it's, it's rooted in our identity. And, and Esther mentioned it. When she says, when I say my family, I don't mean my mother and father. I mean everyone, everywhere, through back through time, forward, and as far out as my family goes. That's what I mean when I say my family. It's a big deal. That is as big a part of your identity in some parts of the world as your breathing and your skin and those things. And so I want to give you some basic worldviews. A worldview, and, and you're going to find that cultures embrace these. All right? So the first one is right versus wrong. This is very much a Western worldview. This is uh, Europe. This is the United States. That's why we are the lawsuit capital of the world. Here's why. It's because if something goes wrong, somebody was wrong. There's no such thing as an act of God. Somebody screwed up. Somebody's paying. It's just a matter of figuring out who pays. So it's the lawsuit capital of the world. Right versus wrong. It's, it's the birth of, of, of social justice. It is about right and wrong are the most critical thing on the planet. What it requires is that you decide who is right and wrong. That's the problem. The problem is somebody has to decide who is right and wrong. And who I decide is right and wrong will be different than who you decide is right and wrong. And so now we're deciding which one of us is right and wrong. And so right and wrong become a world view. So when I look at um, things going on in Pakistan, uh, how they, you know, are trying to prevent women from having education, it's easy to me. That's wrong. It's just easy. It's a no-brainer. But it's not that easy over there. It's because their worldview is not about right and wrong. The next one is honor versus shame. This is very much from the Middle East or from Asia, from the East. Honor and shame are critical. And so you don't dishonor your family. Honor and shame. And so which one are you going to be in? And the third one? is power versus fear. Bless you. So you have some parts of the world, Latin America has honor and shame, and they also have power versus fear. You're just going to have enough power, and you're going to create enough fear that you control things. Why, why do I share that with you? I share that because these are the results of how our belief system goes. And this is what Jesus came to change. Amen. It's the essence of what we call transformation, of being different on the inside. And you see, when we surrender our old life, then that question, 
who am I now? What's on my post-it note will become critical. And if it hasn't become critical, then we probably did not really see the surrender for what it really is. I want you to look at, uh, look at this with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all of my possession, all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If we break this down, let's look at the first one. If I have a voice that commands across both worlds, but it's just noise, if it isn't founded in love. If I have the knowledge and the insight that's natural and supernatural, that I, can, I, I understand the future, I understand the past, I have all this knowledge and capability, past, present, and future, but it says, if that's all I have, I have nothing. The other says, if I have this faith that I can move mountains, I have the power to do anything with my faith. It says, but if I don't have the love of God, I don't have anything. Do you see that this is challenging worldview? You see how different this sounds? We have a video uh, because I want you to see the, the difference. This is a video from a, a comedy called Gung Ho. And, and what I want you to see is you will see the difference between an Asian view, this is in Japan, an Asian view of shame and an American view of shame. So you're going to see what a right-wrong person does with shame, and you're going to see what an honor-shame person does with shame. It's very different. We do it very different. Bring down 13. Can we get it? <laughs> when we show this, I want you to hear, Michael Keaton is the American in this. Towards the end, I want you to hear what he would do with the shame.
Thank you. If we can't get it, it's okay. While they're working on that, I'm going to continue. And, and just keep up where we are if we don't need to go back to this slide. Oh, you got it? Good. Excellent. I wear those on the inside if I were you. In my world of right and wrong, I would definitely put those on the inside. We don't tend to want our shame all out there. But in a different culture, that shame is, identifies them, and that's how it happens for them. <clears throat> If I give away everything I embrace and I am, uh, everything I have, I embrace hardship, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. What the scripture is sharing with us is what God is providing you is a very different worldview. He's talked about spiritual power. He's talked about economic power. He's talked about influence. He's talked about all these things. And what he's saying is, these are no longer the value points of a life. They're no longer where you're going to find your identity. Do you hear it? Do you see what they're saying there? These are some of the most, and, and we're going to move into what God replaces them with. It's a new world view. 
1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. After we've described how love is central and is the foundation for our new worldview, they say it this, love is patient. Patience will be a part of your new identity. Let it go to your prefrontal cortex right now. You're going to be patient because I am patient. Love is kind. Oh, kindness will now be really important. More important than riches. More important than power. More important than talent. Kindness. Let it be written on your prefrontal cortex. We won't be envious of one another anymore. That won't be what identifies us. We won't look at somebody with beauty or somebody with money or somebody with a great car, amazing talent, and say, I want that. We won't have to do that anymore. Why? Because we will be complete in a different way. It's a new world system. It won't boast. It won't be proud. Oh, there goes pride. There goes my ability to make to, to make my abilities and my accomplishments something that I tell people about, something that I can say, look at me. I made it. I am successful. Does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. You hear how different this is? You hear how unmanageable this is becoming? Do you realize I'm getting smaller and smaller and smaller? I can't boast. I, I, can't, I can't have pride. I can't be accomplished. I, you know, I can't put myself above others. Now I can't even seek for myself. Who's going to seek for me? Are you going to seek for me? Who's going to seek for me? It's not easily angered. Oh, this is a very different worldview. This is a complicated worldview, God. This can't be done by human beings. This is not a human worldview. And God would say, exactly. That's exactly right. It is not a human worldview. It is my Amen. worldview. Amen. It keeps no records of wrongs. Well, our worldview just went out the window. Right and wrong, as powerful and as important as it is, it's saying, I can't keep a record of wrongs. Can I keep a record of rights? Because if I know how many there are and how many rights there are, I'll know how many wrongs there are. And God says, mm. The point is, we're not record keeping on the performance of people. Not even yourself. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And it will never fail. These, these verses are so powerful, they're used most often in wedding vows. But the truth be known, they're not wedding vows. They're my new identity. 
This is who I am. You see how different it is than my world? You see how complicated laying down my old self and taking up something God is giving me that I don't even know where to begin. And, and God's de declaration is, my worldview is real and it's more powerful than any worldview. And it's the one that will outlast all the other worldviews. Verse 8, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. We go down to verse 13. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. This is the story, the identity that Jesus offers us as kingdom people. This is what he offers us. This is, this is what he's saying. If you want to know what I'm like, this is what I'm like. This is how I think. It's how I feel. If you want to know how I look at you, how I've chosen to look at you, I've chosen to look not at your wrongs. I've chosen to look not at your weaknesses. I've chosen to look not at the things where you've blown opportunity. I choose to look at you in this world view. And what he's saying is, if my people take my worldview, then the world will be able to recognize them because they will appear very different. You see, the world, for the most part, has seen the church with a worldview that's very critical. It's judgmental. It's religious. It's ceremonial but without life. The, the view of the church, I'm not saying the church, I'm saying the view of the church across the land is they are sexual predators of children. Uh, they are only after the money. They're crooked. Um, you know, that every healing service is rigged. This is how the world sees. They judge, but they do the same things that we do. It's because our worldview as the church is not often looked like God. What we do is we take our worldview and we try to enhance it with God's power and God's blessings and God's giftings. And we look at what God brings to the table that makes my life better. The blessing of God, the anointing of God, you know, the favor of God, the forgiveness of God. And if I bring all these things in and I add them on to my life and where I want to go and my hopes and my dreams, then maybe if God is real, it'll be like I'm on high-octane life. But the truth is, God says, your life, as you created it, none of it is coming along. 
I will provide the life. In 2 Corinthians, verse 15, it says, He died for everyone, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. In Ephesians 4, 23, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on a new self created to be like God. This is the life that Scripture offers us. This is what God offers us. In 2 Corinthians further, in verse 16, it says, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we even thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. This is the life that God offers us. That, that passage goes on and says, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ and God has given us the task of bringing others back, of reconciling people. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. This is the people of God. When we talk about the vineyard being culturally relevant, I think people struggle with what this means. Like, you know, we're going to have cool music or we're going to have, you know, gonna dress like we're cool or we're going to have art on the wall that's cool or designer coffee, all this stuff. It, it's not any of that. The first thing to be relevant is to not be religious. It's not to be trapped and wrapped up in ceremony that is hurdles for the world to have to learn or overcome. To have a culture that is God's worldview. Each generation adjusts the worldview. You know, people write books right now preaching to millennials. Millennials are different. Millennials are this. And, you know, they stay at home longer and they want this lifestyle and they want that. It's just their worldview. It's what their brain is imprinted with that says, this is me. I'd rather text people. I'd rather do Snapchat than talk to you on the phone. I'd rather do any conversation deep or shallow in 140 characters. It's who I am. It's my peeps. That is not who they are. And they're not Gen Xers. And they're not postmodern. They're not any of these things. They are the people of God. And, and that is the call to the world, all of the world. And once we move into this relationship with Jesus, I don't care how much you text or use Snapchat. They're not the point. I don't care if you use an organ in your church. 
I don't care if you have Zydeco or Jazz or something else. I really don't like Zydeco. But other than that, I, you know, it's just me. The new worldview, the one that God gives us, will require an interface for you to connect with the world. And the spirit that is in you, he is the reminder, he is the counselor, he is the teacher, he is the truth. He is the one that creates that interface. And in that moment, you won't have to be judgmental when somebody is wrong. Jesus will give you a way. You'll get it. It'll be brilliant. And you'll go, wow, that was cool. Like when they asked Jesus, should we give a tax to Caesar? He says, give me a coin. They give him a coin. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. Okay, well, let's give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and let's give to God what is God's. Isn't that a brilliant answer? I mean, isn't that like everybody, everybody's done? Why? It's because the interface, the part that went between the legalistic and the corrupt world and the world where he was trying to, they were trying to trap him to the place where God was moving came together in the spirit of God and it was the interface that allowed that culture and the culture of God to connect in a way that life came from it. You won't go with a new set of rules you will go with the spirit. This new identity is learned. We will learn it. You learn it, and this new identity is practiced. We have to practice it. It's different. It doesn't feel normal. And finally, we model this for each other. My dream is a church where we take that worldview that's so amazing and so wonderful, so different, so risky. We believe that it's ours to hold and to give away and that all the world will be blessed by it, no matter what their worldview is, that when they come in touch with a worldview that's powered by love, where it's anointed to reach all peoples in all places, all generations, all walks of life, all the time, that we will find our spot and we will call it home. My dream is a church that does that, that takes seriously a worldview that we can't manage on our own. We can't we can't operate it on our own. It will always require, it will always require that the Spirit help us move in that world order. If you would stand.